Well, as I begin, I would like to, first of all, express my thanks to the congregation here at Grapevine for the efforts that they've put forth to host this study yet again. It's always a beneficial time, and um, we, ex- we appreciate that very, very much. And I appreciate uh, Art and Greg entrusting me with the topic and asking me and inviting me to speak, and I hope that our study is helpful uh, for all of us. Now, if you noticed on the, uh, the schedule, this was billed as the second of the contemporary issues of this year's study. Uh, I don't have a lot of books. There have been, to my knowledge, no European studies about this topic, and CNN and Fox News don't address this very often. Um, Jonathan's talk was incredible, and I appreciated that so much. Uh, this is a slightly different contemporary issue. Not one that really maybe the world even thinks about, but amongst us and amongst the church. It is something that there are questions about. I've enjoyed the study. I feel like I've learned from the study, and I hope that what I have to say will help us in regards to the question of ordaining evangelists. I want to start by saying that taking us all the way back to the moments before Jesus ascended, Jesus gave, of course, His great commission that we're all well aware of, and he gave his apostles their primary mission, their marching orders, you might say, and that was simply to make disciples of all nations. And according to the account in Mark 16 and verse 15, that was going to be accomplished by having them go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And so from the very beginning days of the Lord's kingdom, preaching has been the heartbeat, you might say, of the advance of the kingdom. Now, it is Jesus who paid the price. It is God's plan and power that offers redemption. It is the Holy Spirit that has revealed all truth. But for the good news, for the gospel to go forth and to be shared with men, the Lord has entrusted His people, not angels, not some divine messenger, but His people with the sacred mission of telling the good news to others and of teaching others the will of God. Now, in some fashion, this responsibility has always fallen on the shoulders of every disciple of Christ. And throughout the centuries, Christians have shown their light to the world. They have prepared themselves to defend their hope. They have shared the message of salvation with their family and their friends and their neighbors. But also from the earliest days of the church, this responsibility of preaching the gospel of King Jesus has also been accomplished by men who chose to dedicate themselves specifically to that task. Now at first this was the apostles, but as the church grew, more men took up the responsibility of preaching the gospel so that more disciples could be made and added to the kingdom. And nearly 2,000 years later, the Lord's commission still stands. And evangelists, that is those who proclaim the good news, are still needed in the kingdom of the Lord's people. But how are these men found? And how are they equipped And how are they utilized? Now that's a lot of questions right there. But the topic that I've been asked to cover specifically is the topic of evangelists' ordination. And so I've been given uh, six questions, or maybe a few more than six, but in these six uh, questions to try and address, when should a congregation ordain a man as an evangelist? How does a man show he is ready? Essentially, what should his maturity level be? What should be the maturity of the ordaining congregation? Must that congregation have elders? Does anyone have the responsibility to train a man before he is ordained an evangelist? 
Is an evangelist ordination once for life, or does it end if the congregation who originally ordained him is no longer faithful, or if the individuals who ordained him are all dead or unfaithful? And lastly, can or should additional ordinations take place prior to a journey, such as to preach a gospel meeting, or to go to another uh, country to preach the gospel? So we, uh, I will try and come back to these questions. We're going to have an area of focus before we address these questions. So I'll say that if I don't quite get to these in 45 minutes, these would be some excellent questions for the Q&A session that we can get to. But to address those questions, there's a few areas that I want to focus on that I think are important to be able to address some of those um, practical questions. First of all, this is not a study of the role of an evangelist per se, but if we're going to talk about ordaining evangelists, I think we need to talk a little bit about what the New Testament teaches about evangelists and about evangelism. Also, since this is a topic about ordination, what is ordination? That's kind of a fancy term. Some people might use it frequently. Most people in common vernacular do not use that word very often. So when we're talking about evangelist ordination, that kind of makes an assumption that we need to talk about. Is ordination a part of the New Testament? What does the New Testament teach about it? And then thirdly, this isn't part of the title or assignment specifically, but I think it is an underlying uh, issue here, and that is the issue of authority. Uh, a lot of these questions that were asked, I think that is one of the underlying issues here. That is, do evangelists have particular or special or unique authority? And I think that's an important question when we talk about ordaining or appointing a man. Because if ordination grants some special form of authority, then these questions become very weighty and very important questions. Now, on the other hand, if an evangelist is not granted some special authority because he is ordained an evangelist, these questions are still important, but perhaps they become more a focus of wisdom and practicality. And so interwoven through these first two ideas that I'm going to spend the most of our time on, uh, we'll see where we can maybe get some ideas about this question of evangelists and what authority they may or may not have. So hopefully, as we study these, uh, in light of the New Testament, we'll gain what we need to address the questions pertaining to evangelists being ordained in the church today. So let's start with evangelism and evangelists in the New Testament. Now, as far as evangelists, the noun form of that Greek word, and that's, as far as I can tell, just a, a transliteration, the noun is euangelistes, uh, that is only found three times in the entire New Testament. The first, or one of those occasions, is the well-known Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. So in this passage, we find evangelists listed among four other roles that have been specifically given as gifts by the Lord to the church, as we're told in verse 12, for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ. Now this passage here says nothing about appointing or ordaining any of these positions. It just shows us that these positions exist. But what this does help us see is that there is an official role of an evangelist in the Lord's church. Now in one sense, all of us are evangelists. Any Christian can evangelize. Every Christian should evangelize in some form or another. That is, to evangelize is simply to proclaim or share the good news of the gospel. Everybody in this room who's a Christian can and should do that. But Ephesians 4 verse 11 is not talking about 
all Christians. It's talking about the Lord ordained appointed leadership, generally speaking, in the church. It outlines that divine pattern of leadership that should help build up and equip the church. Now, another time that we find the Greek noun evangelist is when we read about a man named Philip. Now, Philip's an interesting individual. We first meet him in Acts chapter 6. We, uh, not to study that whole passage, but that's where there were the Hellenistic Greek widows that were being overlooked uh, in the daily distribution for widows. There was a problem that arose, and there were men. the apostles told the congregation to appoint men or to uh, select men, and they would appoint them. And Philip turns out to be one of these seven men. That tells us that Philip must have been a man of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now, shortly after that, persecution intensifies in Jerusalem, especially following Stephen's martyrdom. And so many, most of the Christians fled Jerusalem. And Acts 8 verse 4 tells us that these scattered Christians went about preaching the word. Now that seems to be a very generic preaching. That's just the Christians. It's not that these were all appointed evangelists, but as Christians scattered, they took with them the message of hope. They took with them the gospel of Jesus Christ and shared the very message that actually got them kicked out of Jerusalem. But the rest of Acts chapter 8 focuses on one specific man and the preaching that he was doing, and that's Philip. First of all, we find him preaching in Samaria, where there is a wonderful reception of the gospel. After that, he was directed by an angel of the Lord to go towards Gaza, where he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and there he preaches to him Jesus. And kind of a strange verse, we're told that he found himself at Azotus, as the Spirit had taken him away. But in Acts 8.40 it says that he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So he moved north and comes to Caesarea and he preaches the whole way. So he's preaching in Samaria, he's preaching to the eunuch, he's preaching in every town that he travels through. And then we don't encounter Philip again until Acts 8.21 when Paul is on his way back trying to make his way to Jerusalem and Luke says that they stopped on the next day and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. So this is the same Philip that we're reading about earlier in Acts and here he is called Philip the evangelist. Now a few questions about Philip since he is an evangelist. Who appointed Philip and when? We don't know. There's nothing in Acts that tells us when Philip was appointed or if Philip was appointed. We simply don't have that information. He was appointed as one of the seven, but that was for the task of caring for widows. Thus, Philip's appointment as an evangelist, if it occurred, is simply not recorded. But what we do see is Philip evangelizing. Again, in Samaria, he preached the gospel and converted lost souls. He preached Jesus to the eunuch. As he traveled, he preached the gospel in every town. Now, as far as we can tell from Acts, Philip's activities are not guided by a congregational mandate or appointment. He is simply evangelizing. Sometimes, with the help and direction of the Holy Spirit, such as where to go to meet the Ethiopian eunuch, but not necessarily all the time. As he traveled north, he preached the gospel. So it seems most likely that Philip was an evangelist because he evangelized. Also something interesting about uh, Philip is, was he mobile or stationary? Well, he was both. As he leaves Jerusalem, he preaches in Samaria. He preaches over by Gaza. He preaches in every town as he travels north. But then he comes to Caesarea and we find him there at the end of Acts 8 and we find him there again in Acts 21, which from what I've read is somewhere around 20 years difference. 
And he appears to still be in Caesarea and is still known as Philip the Evangelist. Now, did Philip travel during those 20 years? Perhaps. We, we can't say that he did or didn't. But he seemed to make Caesarea his home, just as Jerusalem had been before. And yet he still worked there and labored as an evangelist. The third occurrence of the noun is regarding Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul tells Timothy, Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, aside from Philip, Timothy's the only other specific individual who's not necessarily called an evangelist, but told to do the work of an evangelist. So much of what we consider to be instructions for and about evangelists come from what we read in Paul's letters to Timothy, and understandably so. As we look at Timothy's life, we meet him in Acts 16. He began traveling with Paul during the second missionary journey. He quickly becomes, or appears to quickly become, but over time becomes very trusted by Paul and a key co-worker for Paul. He's someone that Paul will send letters with. He's someone that Paul will leave behind to help congregations when Paul has to leave. He's someone that Paul will send to congregations to help them out. And ultimately, of course, he's left to Ephesus to assist that congregation, particularly with combating false doctrine, according to 1 Timothy 1 verse 3. And it's while he's there that Paul writes his letter to Timothy. Now, we can learn a lot about Timothy or about evangelism from Timothy, but I also think we need to practice some caution. First of all, Timothy was sent and appointed to various works from what we read by Paul, and by thus apostolic guidance. There's nowhere that we actually read about a congregation appointing and sending Timothy. We're going to talk about the laying on of hands here in just a moment. So it does seem that he may have been appointed or ordained, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. But he was especially under the guidance of the Apostle Paul. That's not to say congregations can't send men. We'll hopefully talk about all of this. Just simply as we look at Timothy, we need to look at Timothy for what is revealed and not draw conclusions uh, that aren't actually there in the text. What we do know is Timothy traveled with Paul. He helped congregations. He was supposed to do the work of an evangelist. So as we look at what Paul describes he should do, then we can get a good idea of what that work is. Now, those are the only occurrences of evangelists in the New Testament. I want to mention just a couple of others, though. For example, Paul calls himself in 1 Timothy 2.7 and 2 Timothy 1.11 a preacher. This is the only, well, there is one other occasion, but it's not really germane to this, uh, where this word is used. It's a different word, charix, which just means a public messenger, herald, or proclaimer. I think contextually, as we look at this, Paul would view this as a, a synonymous description of an evangelist. And we'll see another word that's used in the verb form that applies to this. Often, sometimes it's talk, talked about evangelize. That's someone who talks, tells the good news. Sometimes we have the Bible talking about proclaiming, and then it talks about the gospel. And so they're very synonymous terms. So Paul was a preacher. Now, one thing to note about Paul is where did Paul's appointment come from? It came from Jesus. He was appointed, and interestingly, not just a preacher, but an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher uh, by the Lord. Then we have others in the New Testament that certainly look to be evangelists, even though they're not ever called that. We have Apollos, who is a powerful public speaker who goes to various places. He was very instrumental, apparently, at the congregation of Corinth. Uh, but when we look at Apollos' activities, it's interesting. Uh, when he, is, when he oh, is taught the way more accurately in Ephesus, we're told that he desired to go to Achaia, and the brethren in Ephesus encouraged him. And so they wrote a letter of recommendation. Now, that's very different than appointing him. They didn't appoint him and ordain him to do that. 
But they did recognize that was a good thing, and they encouraged him, and they sent a letter of recommendation that he might be accepted. Also, we see Apollos exercising some interest in autonomy. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul is uh, providing, or in Corinthians, Paul says that he wanted to have Apollos go to him at one point, to them, but he says Apollos didn't want to, basically. He said he would go at a later point. And so even from an apostle, there were times when at least Apollos said, that's not in my schedule right now, I'll go when I can. And so there's an interesting amount of autonomy in whatever Apollos was doing. We also have men like Titus. We often refer to Titus as an evangelist. Now, he's never actually called an evangelist in the New Testament, but he was a co-worker of Paul. He was given responsibility on Crete, similar to what Timothy was given to do in Ephesus. There's a great deal of similarity between the letter to Titus and the letters to Timothy. So it seems obvious that Titus was also doing the work of an evangelist. Now, the noun doesn't show up very much. When it comes to the verb, the action of preaching and proclaiming, it comes up a lot. In fact, the, ter- the verb euangelizo shows up 54 times. Uh, cariso, you can tell that's related to that carex, the proclaimer. That means to announce or proclaim shows up 61 times. Over 100 times in the New Testament, we read something about an individual or a group preaching or proclaiming something. Here's just a, s- a simple list. It's not an exhaustive list. But John the Baptist did this. Jesus is said to do this. When Jesus sent out the twelve, this is how their activity is described. The gathering demoniac, when Jesus had healed him, he told him to go home and to proclaim to his family and his friends the good things the Lord had done for him. Of course, he took that and he went even further and he went about the Decapolis telling people, uh, but these are the words that are used to describe what he was doing. We have the apostles, the scattered Christians of Acts 8.4. We've already mentioned Philip. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, immediately after his conversion, we find him proclaiming uh, the good news of Jesus even there in Damascus. Uh, We have Paul and Barnabas. We have some, this is an interesting one, Paul talks about in Philippians uh, 1.15, those who preach the Lord from envy. Now that doesn't sound like a great preacher. I don't know who appointed these men, if anybody appointed, but they were involved in the act of preaching. Then we've got Timothy, and that list could go on and on. But these are some of the people that evangelized. Now as we look at that list, we see some people that were appointed. We see the apostles, and we're going to talk about some of these appointments, that the disciples were appointed by Jesus. You might say that the gathering demoniac was appointed, but his appointment was nothing formal or ceremonious. Jesus said, go tell people the good news. And that's exactly what he did. The apostles were certainly appointed. You have scattered Christians, who that's just general Christians. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, we'll talk about their appointment. So we see a mix. We see people that are specifically appointed to a task. And we see people that are just sharing the good news. So, as we talk about this, we kind of wrap up the evangelist section. What is it, as we look at the examples and the verbs of evangelizing, what is the evangelist's work? Well, first and foremost, an evangelist evangelizes. That may sound really simple, and it is really simple. But it's also very important. The primary goal of proclaiming the gospel is to tell others, especially unbelievers, the good news of Jesus Christ so that they can hear it, believe it, and obey it, and thereby become disciples of Jesus themselves. Now, sharing the good news of Jesus is not just limited to talking to non-believers, but evangelists preach and teach amongst those who have become disciples of Christ. 
as we see in Ephesians 4, verse 12. They are a part of the body of leadership that helps build up and equip and edify the body. As we look at what Timothy was instructed to do, Timothy was specifically told to do the work of an evangelist. So this would include refuting false doctrine. That's one of the reasons he had been left at Ephesus. And as we look at the other things he is told to do, and he's working, by the way, at a congregation that has elders, but he is to work as an evangelist. He helps set congregations in order. Titus was told he was left on the island of Crete to set in order what was lacking and to appoint elders. Timothy is obviously to help with the appointment of elders uh, and deacons. He's also taught to train other men to be able to teach others also. And so there's a great deal of work that evangelists had to do in the New Testament. And when we compile everything, what I think we will see is a flexible role within the church. Sometimes evangelists traveled from city to city. Sometimes they stayed in one place for an extended period of time. Sometimes their efforts focused on reaching unbelievers. Sometimes they focused on helping existing congregations. Sometimes they worked with elders. Sometimes they worked towards elders. Sometimes they worked with one congregation like Timothy at Ephesus. Sometimes they worked with several congregations, such as Titus on the island of Crete. It's a flexible role. And that is a blessing to the church. Not every evangelist is going to be doing the exact same thing. There are different needs for different places. And the role of an evangelist is one of the helps for the Lord's church so that in every situation... The body of Christ can grow both by adding new members who have become new disciples of Christ and by strengthening Christians where the gospel has already found root. So I think that's a beautiful thing about the role and the work of evangelists. Now, we also need to talk about ordination in the New Testament. And as we talk about ordination in the New Testament, we might need to ask ourselves, you know, what is uh, ordination? Now, that is a term that has kind of changed, I think, in meaning over the years. For example, in the King James Version, ordain appears 21 times. Many of the modern translations uh, will only use that word once or twice, if at all. They will frequently use, uh, translate those Greek words, and there's several that are translated that way, as something like appoint or select. And I think there's a reason for that. When you look at, for example, the Merriam-Webster definition of ordain, it means to invest officially with ministerial or priestly authority. And so today, the official meaning of ordain is to invest a priestly or ministerial type of authority. And so as we look at what happens in the New Testament, we need to see, are these people being invested with some type of higher authority? Or are they being selected? Chosen, appointed to a task. So this is one of those, I'm not saying it's wrong to use the term ordination, but we need to know what we mean when we use that word and what the New Testament means. So let's look at a couple examples of people that had hands laid on them as a means of appointment or were said to be appointed in the New Testament. First of all, there is the twelve. Mark 3, verse 14 and 16, we're told that Jesus appointed the twelve and he appointed them, first of all, to be with him. That's kind of an interesting appointment. He selected these men. That wasn't an official ceremony, and that wasn't investing them with an authority. He was selecting these men especially to be with him and to learn from him. But he also appointed them to send them out to preach. 
Also, in Luke chapter 10, we have Jesus appointing and sending the 72. He did this. He sends them out in pairs. And we read there that they were to heal the sick and proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. And this was to prepare all these cities for Jesus' arrival. So they were appointed to the task of preparing these people for Jesus' arrival. They were given authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick. But the authority of their message, their authority over people, was simply the Word of God. It was simply the message that they had to take to them. Then we have the seven in uh, Acts chapter 6. We've already mentioned this a bit. We have the problem with the widows that are being overlooked. There was a dissension that was growing. There was a potential division that this could cause. But the apostles, as this complaint came to them, they realized they are not going to be able to focus on their primary mission, which they said was prayer and a ministry of the Word. That's kind of a study in and of itself that they viewed that so highly. But they said, we can't focus on this if we're also taking care of serving tables. It's not that this wasn't important. It was very important. But they couldn't be spread so thin and do everything. So they told the congregation, here's what you're going to do. You're going to select seven men. They gave them the qualifications to look for. They said, you select these men, and we will appoint them to this task. And that's exactly what they did. And we are told that after the seven men were chosen, that the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, not to open up a debate, uh, some people, many, most commentators think these are the first deacons. Some people debate whether that's the case or not. Set that aside, it certainly sets a precedent that for deacons or those that have some task of the congregation, that it's good to appoint them. I would say, especially with deacons, in conjunction with what we see with elders, uh, the process of laying on of hands and prayer, since we are designating them to a special task, is good and appropriate. We also see, of course, elders being appointed in multiple places. Uh, in Acts chapter, or uh, when Paul leaves Titus on Crete, he gives him the instructions to appoint elders in every town. And that Greek word for appoint is kathistomi, which is the same word used of appointing of the seven in Acts chapter 6. And that word just means to appoint, mean, it can mean to put in charge or to designate. Now we also read in Acts 14 and 23 that on their return trip during the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church. Now this is a different word. It's the Greek word kairotoneo. By the way, I'm not a Greek scholar, so please forgive any mispronunciations. Uh, but it simply means to appoint, install, or choose. And that we are told there that Paul and Barnabas did that with praying and fasting. Then we also have Paul and Barnabas. And these are interesting examples because there's two times that Paul and Barnabas were appointed. First of all, in Acts 13, we're told that in Antioch there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Saul were among them and some other men are listed. And that while they were fasting and worshiping, that the Holy Spirit in some way communicated, spoke to these men and said to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that the Holy Spirit had for them. And so with that, they appointed Barnabas and Saul. They laid hands on Barnabas and Saul after fasting and prayer. Told that they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. Now Acts 8 verse 4 says that the Holy Spirit sent Barnabas and Saul. There's, there's some things to learn here. But I also think we have to see what is here in the story. First of all, this was a divine commission. This was not Antioch saying, where should we take the mission to next? What do we think is a good idea? In this example, not that churches can't, make plans and try and evangelize, they should. 
But in this example, the Holy Spirit said, Paul and Barnabas are doing this. Set them aside for it, and they obeyed. It was the Holy Spirit that was sending these men out. Now, when Paul and Barnabas finish that trip and they come back to Antioch, we get to Acts 8 and verse 15, or Acts chapter 15, and we have a problem again. We have these teachers have come from Judea. They're teaching circumcision as a requirement for salvation. Paul and Barnabas are rigorously debating this with them, and ultimately the congregation decides this needs to go back to Jerusalem and discuss this with the elders and the apostles that are there. And what do they do? The, the text says that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, was this a formal appointment? Was this something that required a ceremony? No. This was a selection. This was a choice. The congregation said, here's a job that needs to be done. And we, have men, we need to have men to do this. We need to send people to Jerusalem to discuss this situation. We need to select men to do that. Paul, Barnabas, and a few others, we choose you. Obviously, they trusted these men. But the appointment was simply assigning a task to some individuals to accomplish. We have another unique one in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We have a famous and yet somehow nameless preacher. Um, I mentioned that to Heidi, that Paul talks about a preacher who is famous among all the churches for his preaching, but we don't have his name. And Heidi said, maybe it's Kevin Presley. So that's a... That's one suggestion. I don't think it's accurate, but it's, a it's, a, it's an idea. But this famous preacher is mentioned. What Paul's doing in this passage is he's commending some men that he's sending to Corinth. He mentions Titus is coming. And then he says, and with him we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching. And then he says, and also, he wasn't just a good preacher. He was a trustworthy man because he says, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us and carry out this act of grace. That act of grace, of course, is the collection that Paul and his others are gathering from congregations, the funds that they are taking back to Judea to help the needy saints. As they collected this, it was not uncommon for congregations to select a man to travel with them for security, to, for a represent, representative of the congregation. There's all sorts of wise reasons to send in that time, in this, when this is how they're collecting funds, and they appointed. And by the way, that is the same word that's used of appointing elders in Acts 14, verse 23. Now again, was this some big formal ordeal? It wouldn't seem like it. It would seem like there's a job that needs doing. Men need to do the job. And the congregation is selecting and designating men. You do this job. And then, of course, we have Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.14 and 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. Uh, we have some interesting passages about the laying on of hands. I'll just go ahead and get all of these up here. Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Later in 2 Timothy, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through um, the laying on of my hands. Now, this is how I typically read or hear this reconstructed, combining Acts 16, verses 1 through 3, and these passages in Timothy. The idea is, well, probably the congregation, either at Derby or Lystra, I've read some commentators that believe both congregations got together and both elderships were a part of this. That opens up a can of worms that we can stay away from for right now because that's not my topic. But uh, the idea is Derby and or Lystra 
they appointed Timothy and they laid their hands on him, as we read about in 1 Timothy 4, and that was ordaining him, appointing him to the role of an evangelist to travel with Paul. And probably at the same time, Paul lays hands on Timothy to give him a spiritual gift. That is possible. This is one of the points I want to make. That reconstruction makes a lot of assumptions. Maybe good assumptions, but a lot of assumptions. The brethren were told in Derby and Lustra spoke highly of Timothy. But nothing in Acts 16 says that they appointed him. In fact, when you read Acts 16, it was Paul's idea for Timothy to go. He gets there. Timothy's probably was converted sometime either during Paul's first missionary journey or since then. And since that time, he has worked and he has labored and he has earned a good reputation among the brethren. They all speak highly of him. Paul sees this young man and he wants to take Timothy with him. Now, Clearly, the congregation probably thought that was a good idea as well. And they send Timothy with Paul. But we're not told in Acts 16 that they appointed him. We're told that they spoke well of him and Paul wanted him to come. Also, Paul, when he speaks about this presbytery, this council of elders, he does not mention which council of elders laid their hands on Timothy or when it occurred. It could have been at Lystra. It could have been at Derby. It could have been at Ephesus. It could have been in a number of places. It could have been when Timothy was sent out. It could have been some other time. Paul does not mention the specific intent of the laying on of hands. It could have been to appoint Timothy as an evangelist. It could have been, much like the congregation at Antioch did, recognizing the journey that Paul and Barnabas were about to take. It could have been recognizing him and supporting him to travel with Paul. We're not told the specific intent of the laying on of hands. And this is to me the most important point here. Paul does not use the laying on of hands by the elders as some proof that Timothy has certain authority that he can and should wield at Ephesus. Both times that Paul mentions the laying on of hands, that of the elders and that of Paul's, It's for Timothy's encouragement and a reminder to him. The authority that Timothy possessed at Ephesus was due first of all to what he preached faithfully of God's word. And secondly, if there was more authority than that, it was as his representative of an apostle and what Paul had specifically as an apostle said to do. The laying on of hands of the elders, whether it was the Ephesian elders, Derby's elders, Lystra's elders did not grant Timothy a special authority there in Ephesus. So, I don't want to take everything away. There are things to learn from this example. I just want to caution us from pressing the example too far. So, a few lessons at this point, some conclusions that uh, I've come to from study. I know I've hastened through a lot of this, but a few conclusions that I come to when studying evangelists and evangelism and appointments. And that is first off, Evangelists are important and play an important role and a necessary role in the church. The church's mission is ongoing. And proclaiming the gospel is a mission that's ongoing. So evangelists are needed. But one thing that I've concluded is that the New Testament contains relatively little regarding ordination of evangelists. We know nothing of Philip's appointment as an evangelist. We know nothing of others like Titus or Apollos. What we have concerning Timothy is not necessarily a crystal clear example of ordaining an evangelist. And further, there's no explicit command or explicit example that would mandate and require a formal ordination of a man to be an evangelist. 
Now, don't get me wrong. This does not mean that evangelists cannot or should not be appointed. They should be selected. They should be recognized for a task that they are doing. It doesn't mean we should ignore the topic. But it should warn us that we need to be cautious about demanding one specific way or another. As we mentioned, the role of the evangelist is a flexible role. And how congregations identify and appoint evangelists, I believe, has some flexibility built in as well. And then, again, I, do, I believe there's no evidence that ordaining an evangelist invests in that man a granted or special or unique authority. This is very important. The authority of an evangelist is the Word of God. And this might be getting into another territory that I don't want to step into too much, but the predominant authority over an evangelist is the Word of God. And the Word of God must be heeded. Wherever a man departs from the Word of God, he should be corrected and refuted by other faithful Christians, be that elders, teachers, other evangelists. And if he does not repent and change, then he should not be heeded and he should not be supported. Ordained or not, if he is not teaching the Word of God faithfully, he is not doing the work of an evangelist and should not be heeded. So, with some of that, and I know there may be questions still that come up, we have eight minutes left to try and talk through these questions. I don't know if we'll get through all six, but we'll get through what we can. First of all, when should a congregation ordain a man as an evangelist? Well, I think it helps to ask a couple of questions here, just from a practical standpoint. Now, I've already I've played my hand. I don't believe that a man is given a special authority, and so I think that these questions are important. I think they become matters of wisdom and practicality, but we still need to discuss matters of wisdom and practicality. So when should a congregation ordain a man? Well, let's ask a couple of questions first. Why does the congregation want to appoint the man? Are we appointing a man because he's a really good speaker? And because we want to let other congregations know that he's capable of preaching and he's capable of holding meetings. And so if they're looking for a man to preach a gospel meeting, here's a man that we've appointed as capable of doing that. That may sound expedient and like a good idea, but I will say there's no concept like that found in the New Testament of appointing a man for other congregations to call him to hold meetings. That, that's not the purpose of appointing an evangelist. Is it to let other congregations know he would be a good candidate if they happen to be looking for a congregation to work with their congregation? Even though the appointing congregation has no plans and no desires or needs for him to work with their congregation. Congregation says, this is a really good man, we're not going to use him, but if anybody else wants to, we've ordained him to do that. Again, I see why we might think that's a beneficial thing, but it's really not what we find uh, in the New Testament. Is it to designate a man to be supported financially by the congregation? Well, those who labor in the gospel can certainly earn their living from the gospel. That's a good thing, another topic. But financial support is not what makes an evangelist. Paul and many others preach sometimes while supporting themselves. A man can be an evangelist and hold a secular job. Or a man can be an evangelist who is fully supported by a congregation. And either man, I know we use the term full-time preacher... But either man is equally an evangelist 
if he is recognized by a congregation, if he is doing work, if he is doing the work of an evangelist, he is an evangelist. So the point is, why does the congregation want to appoint the man? Why does the man want to be appointed an evangelist? If it's just, again, because he's a really talented speaker and wants to preach, whatever that means, maybe we need to go a bit deeper. Now, if, however, there is a need, if there is a need to evangelize an area, we, we see the opportunity for man to work in an area, be that our area, another area. We see a need to work with training teachers to help them become better teachers. That was part of Timothy's job. We see a need to help establish uh, church leadership. Then that makes sense. And if there are those needs and a man capable to help with those, then yes, a congregation can and should appoint the man. Now, that isn't to say that all evangelist appointments have to be, you know, Train, train these men, and when it's done, you're no longer an evangelist. Because the, the truth is, this is, it all becomes practical at some point. There's always these needs. So there's always a need to evangelize. There's always a need to train teachers. There's always a need to uh, work on church leadership. So more often than not, we are probably going to find that there are needs. And if there are men capable of meeting those needs, then let's select them to help the church meet those needs. And sometimes, many of us here, that may become a lifelong task. Philip seemed to be doing that task for a very long time. Timothy did that task for a very long time. It can be done. Now, that doesn't mean that it has to be done. Maybe a man works as an evangelist for a while. Again, it's practical. Um, second, how does a man show he is ready? I saw this picture and I knew I had to use it. I don't have near as many cool pictures as Jonathan had, but I've got this one. Um, and it fit really well here. How do we know that a man is mature enough? And I can see from my time, this is probably the last question uh, that I'm going to get to. So maybe we can talk about the others in the Q&A. But I think this is an important one uh, for us to consider. And I hope that it's not discouraging. I hope that it's helpful. Simply, we might ask, is he qualified? Now that's a big question. How do we know if he's qualified? When it comes to elders and deacons, we have these nice lists. And if in uh, 1 Timothy 3, we've got another list of elders in Titus 1. So we've got these qualifications. Not that that has made appointing elders and deacons any easier, but we've got qualifications. We don't have a nice, tidy list for an evangelist. Now, I, saw, I read one article where a man had basically compiled a bunch of the direct commands to Timothy uh, and Titus and kind of made a, a sort of list of qualifications. I know that's very small. I can get this too if you want. That's helpful. But I want to think about for a second, and bear with me here, as we talk about a man who is qualified. There are other roles in the church that have qualifications. And I know this might open up a can of worms. We don't need to discuss the qualifications of elders and deacons. But what were those lists doing? What did they They're not just an arbitrary checklist. Those lists show us what type of man the Lord wants to be entrusted with the work and the leadership of the church. Now, as we look at that, what do we find? When we look at those roles, we see the Lord wants men of proven character, of spiritual maturity, of commitment, and worthy of trust. The question is, how can we know that a man is those things. Well, when you look through those qualifications and just apply some reason with it, obviously a man shouldn't be a novice. We're specifically told a novice cannot be an elder. 
That makes sense. How can a man lead by counsel and wisdom who's not had the time to gain wisdom? I don't think we should appoint a novice to the work of a deacon. Would it be wise to appoint a novice to the work of an evangelist who's going to be carrying the gospel to lost souls, who's going to be working with church leaders and training others? How can a novice train others? I don't think that would be very wise. Also, and I know this is where I can maybe get into trouble, so please don't take my words further than I mean them, but I do find it interesting that with elders and deacons, there is a family requirement. Why? Because one of the best barometers of a man's leadership ability is as a husband and as a father. In fact, that's where the vast majority of us will get our first leadership crash course, is as a husband and as a father. And as we look for men who can lead, that's a great place to look. Now, don't get my words wrong. I am not saying that evangelists have to be married. That would be creating a law that's not in the New Testament. There have been wonderful evangelists who were not married. But I will say this. If we see a man, if marriage can teach us something about a man, his singleness can also. Why is the man unmarried? There have been many a godly man and godly women who have chosen a life of celibacy, who have chosen not to be married, and they have committed themselves to a life of discipline and of purity and maturity. And if as we look at a man, we see a mature, controlled, pure man, then we learn something. But I'll also say this. If a man is unmarried because he is not yet mature enough, sometimes admittedly mature enough, to be married and handle marriage, he is not responsible enough to be appointed to the leadership of the Lord's church. When a man is that immature, and all of us were that immature at some point, but if a man is not mature enough to handle that relationship, and that's why he's single, and we know that's why he's single, we should be very careful. We can look at the man's work ethic. Now, how do we know a man's work ethic if he's never worked? That's a tough one. But we want to know that a man is faithful, that he can work sometimes even in the secular world and still be a good Christian. Think of the Lord's principle in Luke 16, that if a man is not faithful with worldly wealth, should he be entrusted with spiritual riches? In the context of evangelists, if a man has not demonstrated in some way a mature and godly work ethic and an ability to work hard and serve God faithfully, should he be appointed to manage the work and the labor of an evangelist? Now, let me also say this. A congregation should not demand perfection or be overbearing. But congregations need to consider much more than how talented of a speaker a man is. And as we look at a man's family life and behavior and work ethic, do we see a man that we can trust with spreading the gospel and helping congregations mature? Is he deemed capable and mature enough to do the work of an evangelist. I know I've got four more questions, um, but the computer says it's time. So I'll take that, and we'll end the study there.